Can you hear? Yes, you can, can't you? There I am. There are handouts distributing themselves among you. If you are a, a huddle leader or have been recruited to be on a huddle team for the four Wednesdays in August, here are some suggestions for the four Wednesdays about conversation, question starter things that you may feel free to get. I'm going to put them here on the pew. And uh, you're welcome. The, the team leaders are, are selecting people to be on their teams to help facilitate in uh, discussion this August. So you maybe talk to about that. Just want you to know, we've got some stuff. I titled this creatively, The Water World of Jesus. And we'll cover almost everything, but feel free. But quieting the storm. Mostly, but not exclusively, what we'll look at is Jesus' association with baptism. But we will also see some other things, uh, among them uh, walking on water and uh, the marriage feast at Cana. Uh, We'll look at that. And we'll even move through Jesus' life and John the Baptist and on down into uh, the book of Acts and into the epistles as we look at water as it relates to baptism in particular. So, everybody got a handout that needs one or wants one? Okay. See, I'm not nice like Neil. I don't put fill in the blanks. I just give you paper, and you gotta, you got to work for it. Mark 1, 4 and 5. Mark starts his gospel off with this, as opposed to the other synoptic writers who don't. How does Mark start the gospel off? Who is he talking about? What's going on here? I'm going to be expecting you to respond and help me. So if you don't. We'll stay here till 9.30. Hmm? John the Baptizer. And what do we learn about John the Baptizer here in Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5? What's He's preaching what? What kind of preaching is he doing? Repentance. And he's got a baptism. What kind of baptism does he have? Hmm? For remission of sins. Okay. So two things we want to sort of bring with us on that. It's a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So we've got remission of sins from the beginning of uh, John's ministry who is going to be setting things up for Jesus. And so he's, he's setting Jesus up, if you will, for a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Okay? Now, uh, let's go down to, to Mark 1, 9 through 11. Mark 1, 9 through 11. This is old-fashioned use your Bible or device night. And uh, what added element do we have here in Mark 1, 9 through 11? Jesus is going to come and be baptized. We can, come, we can put Matthew three thirteen through 17 in there. And so when Jesus comes to be baptized... John's ministry has already started, and everybody's coming all out to be baptized. And so here comes Jesus. 
And how does John respond to that? Glad you're here? He says, no. Uh, you need to be baptizing me. And uh, he had already said, we've got some interesting things coming into play here. He said the Messiah was one that he wasn't worthy to untie his shoe. And so we, we might immediately want to plug this in here, but let's don't. Let's hold off on that for just a little while. But uh, when Jesus uh, is told that you need to be baptizing me, Jesus gives a reason why he needs to go in and be baptized. What's that? To fulfill all righteousness. We might say to do the right thing. And now, easy, this is the easiest question you're going to have tonight. Why would uh, Jesus have phrased it that way? Why didn't he come? He was the only one who came to John. Who didn't come to be baptized for what? Remission of sins. Why? Doesn't have any sins. Nevertheless, he believes that... It, what would people maybe have said if he had not? Well, he wasn't baptized. I know. And who are the people we find out that had refused to be baptized of, of John? The scribes, Pharisees, uh so we got a couple of things going on here. we got people, well, first of all, I'm going to merge all this together and rely on your Bible knowledge or you can look these things up. Uh, when they come, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, when they come to be baptized of John, one of the things he does is he calls them out, right? That'd be cool, wouldn't it? You're going down front to be baptized and Neil says, get out of here, you snake, or something like that. You'd probably... Put a damper on the whole thing for you. So he does it. Now, now let's ask ourselves this question because it's all going to we're going to have some stuff that that comes together here. Why is John being so in your face to them when the people who are coming out to be baptized by him are sinners? Because what are they doing? They're confessing their sins, right? So. Why is he calling these people out? What what is the difference between them and uh, the other folks who are coming, who are sinners, but who are willing to admit it? Okay. What sins are they going to confess? And and so, if it's a baptism of repentance for remission of sins, if you're not genuinely repenting then there's no forgiveness of sins, which would be true for anybody. And I'm sure in the course of church history, there have been people who have been baptized for the wrong reasons, just because it's maybe popular or whatever. Uh, back when I was uh, growing up, our family switched from one denomination to another because the denomination we switched to had more um, sophisticated people in it. And so... Uh, that was, and, and, I, and you, you begin to figure out sometimes some of the people that belong to the denominations that are more blue collar are more free to admit, I got problems. But, but sometimes if it's got a lot of 
you know, prestige associated with it and whatnot, people may be more reluctant to identify themselves with sinners. And so this is a baptism of, re- of repentance for remission of sins. Jesus doesn't have anything to repent of. And he certainly didn't have any sins to be forgiven. But if he didn't do it, it would have been a negative thing. He would have been associated with those folks that uh, didn't. Now, uh, um, amazingly enough, we find out that after John calls them out, that they just basically are done with that. And while all of Judea is going out to be baptized of John, the scribes and the Pharisees uh, rejected the counsel of God and weren't baptized by John. And, and it all starts with that first part of his ministry when they come and he calls them out. He calls them snakes, you brood of vipers. Who's warned you to free from the wrath to come? And so it, they, they just apparently they're just over it at that point. They're not going out there. Now, let's go forward into Jesus' ministry. He's coming into town for the last week of his life, the last Passover of his life. And we have what is somewhat ironically called the triumphal entry because people are all excited and they're putting the palm fronds down and they're referring to him in messianic terminology. And the Pharisees get upset with this and they tell him, shut him up. And Jesus says, if, they, if they're still, the stones will speak out. So, uh, but those same people in a very short period of time are not going to be saying, Hosanna. What are they going to be saying? Crucify him. So uh, Jesus, uh, even the beginning of his ministry, when he cleanses the temple, uh, and, and when he does the first miracle at Cana, and people are getting all excited about the signs that he does, we're told by John in John 2 that he's not really disclosing himself over to them. He's not just leaping into it, so to speak, because he knows what's inside of a man, a woman. And, and that's how we do, isn't it? We, we like to get on the bandwagon. We like to do the rah-rah. We like to get caught up in things without really making a commitment and thinking it out. And so Jesus realizes at the end of his life it's the same thing. That, because he knows that when push comes to shove, uh, they're going to uh, be turning on him. But when he goes into town, he cleanses the temple. The second time he cleanses it when he goes into town for the triumphal entry. The first time he does it is in John 2, which is right after the uh, wedding at Cana. And, and he cleanses the temple there. In John 2, after he cleanses it, uh, he, people are, uh, he says, tear down this temple. And in three days, I'll build it up. And they think he's talking about the temple temple. And Herod had been rebuilding the temple. He'd been working on it for 46 years. It was going to be about another two and a half, three years before he got finished. But uh, so they're, oh, man, are you kidding me? They've been working on this thing for 46 years. And when he's on the cross, even though John records this in the Gospel of John, the synoptics have it when he's on the cross. He said he could rebuild the temple in three days, and there he is up there he's getting crucified. But when he goes into town that second time, after he has cleansed the temple the second time, the religious establishment comes to him and they want to know by what, it's an A word, authority do you do these things? You know, you need to have authority if you're going to come waltzing in here and cleansing the temple. What gives you the right to do that? And he says, okay, look, I've got a question for you. If you answer my question, I'll answer your question. And he goes, here's where we're good. We're actually doing all this to pull John the baptizer in. Here he comes. John's 
baptism. You know the one that after they got called out, they wouldn't have anything to do with anymore, but the people were? John's baptism. Was it from men or was it from God? So they go over and huddle. Uh, Not a good huddle like we have, but, but a bad one. And so the reason they're huddling is because they're not interested in where John's baptism comes from. They really are not. They're interested in what will play the best with the people. And so if they uh, come forth and they say, well, you know, it's from men, the people regard John as a what? Prophet. So, and they got to have the people. I mean, at the end of the day, they got to have the people or they don't have anybody. One of the things, one of my favorite leadership quotes is, if you, if you fancy yourself a leader and nobody's following you, you're just out for a walk. And they didn't want to be out for a walk. So they don't want to make the people mad. But on the other hand, if we say that he's from God, then folks are going to want to wonder, want to know why we rejected him in his baptism. So they're in a, you know, dilemma that you get in sometimes if you're not wanting to be honest and forthright. You get caught up in it and it's, there's, no, there's no easy out. Uh, so what do they say? What do they tell Jesus? We don't know. So we've got John playing a big role in Jesus' life, even after John is dead, as Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem for the last week of his life, the Passion Week. And John's legacy, John's ministry, and John's baptism of repentance for remission of sins, water baptism, is still something that's floating around because of how it was reacted to. Questions or comments? Okay. John 1, 29 to 34. This is where we're going to get an interesting moment here, comparing some things here with what we just saw when Jesus uh, is approaching John. And what did he say? I don't need to be baptizing you. You need to be baptizing me. And now, what do we read? John says, Behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then he recounts when he baptized Jesus. And look at what he says. Look at what he says. He didn't understand fully who he was when he came to be baptized of him. Doesn't he say that? He said, because God told me that he would have a way of letting me know when the Messiah was there, and it would be the one that the Holy Spirit fell upon and remained, because the Holy Spirit's going to be with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, and that's where he joins into him as he begins his ministry, goes off to be tempted of the devil in the wilderness. But, uh, so, so what's up with that? And people who like to discredit the Bible like to make a big deal out of this, but there's really no big deal to be made. Uh, could not John have understood that Jesus was a better man without fully understanding or, or knowing that he was the Messiah? I think he could have. Plus, God has said, I will give you authentication from God when I want you to know who he is. And short of that, he's not going to, you know, own it. And he gets it after he baptizes him.
and the Holy Spirit lights upon him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now later God will say that this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But he will add something to it. Where is that and what does he add to it? Hear ye him. Transfiguration. Okay? So um, Jesus is associated with John in a big way. And John is associated with introducing baptism, uh, baptism of repentance for remission of sins. And so this is all beginning to play out. Now, John 2, 1 through 11. we got some other water stuff here that's not baptism. John 2, 1 through 11. What's going on? Wedding. What happens? There's a social uh, potential embarrassment going on here that Jesus' mother brings to Jesus' attention. What's going on? We're out of wine. Jesus at first, is, he uses a, a colloquialism, what is this to me to you, which basically means this really isn't our business, is it? Which is interesting because he does it. In fact, his mother says, whatever he says to do, do it. And so there are seven water pots. What were the water pots used for? They're empty, by the way. But what, what were they used for? Purifying of the Jews. Did the Jews have a lot of purifying going on? Look for just a moment, if you will, at Mark chapter 7. And uh, there Mark kind of gives some instruction or some uh, schools his Roman audience on Jewish purification stuff, things that you won't find in parallel account in Matthew 15 because his audience originally was probably uh, at Rome and Romans, and they don't know about Jewish customs. And, and what, is, what, is, what do we find Mark explaining uh, to his uh, readers there in Mark 7 about the Jews and their purification? Do they wash a lot of stuff? Man, he even says sofas. I'm telling you what. So they are a water-purifying people. They use it all the time, but they, it, has, it has gone to seed. It has gone where God never intended it to go. There were purification rites in the Old Testament, but they've taken it, and, and I guess it was, well, if a little's good, a lot's better, because that was kind of the way the Pharisees looked at things that God had given. They wanted to expand them and make them more than what God had given. Uh, a couple of things we'll mention, we've mentioned it before, but just to kind of get us oriented to this. There, there were two phrases or words that come into play when we talk about what's going on with all this stuff here and all these washings, 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 and all that hand stuff that they were having to do, and Jesus didn't do it, and his disciples didn't do it, none of which is in the Old Testament. One of the things is called the hedges around the Torah. Any of you grow up with what is technically known as a privet hedge? Anybody have that? Down further south, they're everywhere. My brother once let the uh, break off of a 55 Ford at the head of a driveway. And it went down from about here to the outside wall of the church building. It's going pretty good. It went about that far into the privateage. Because <laughs> those things are tough. But here's what they here's what they they did, and we got to be careful we don't do this because this is one of the main things that got Jesus crucified. If this is where God's law is right here, let's put something here that will make it harder to violate it. And you know what? Why don't we put another one here? And why don't we put another one here? 
And why don't we put another one here? I mean, this is all going to keep people from breaking God's law. It's got to be right. It's got to be good. Did Jesus think it was right and good? If there's anything he has no patience for, no time for, that was it. Here's one of the examples of it. That if you read anything written by a Jewish person today, if it's written in English, uh, you will see uh, how do they how do they put what we would put G O D? What do they do? Hmm. D J. Thank you. I'm, I'm old, Doris. You ought to know that. Uh, <laughs> I've been there, done it. <laughs> uh, they they don't fully spell it out. Now, if you were in in Hebrew and, and you saw what we would call Jehovah or Yahweh, actually they've they've pretty much found out that actually Jehovah is not a bad pronunciation, other than that Hebrew didn't have a J, so it's Yehovah is probably more accurate than Yahweh or Yahweh. But that's neither here nor there. Um, you would have them put the vowel points. See, Hebrew is a consonantal language. It doesn't have vowels. But they added vowels. And, and it, easier to pronounce things with vowels. If you had been raised in Hebrew, you wouldn't really need them because you just understood that. But otherwise, vowels are helpful. And they would put the vowels for Adonai with what would be Jehovah. And they would pronounce it. I don't know. Now, why would they do something like that? I mean, who put Jehovah in the Bible? That'd be God. You suppose he knew what he was doing? I think he probably did. He put Adonai in there too. Because he wanted it in there too. In fact, when Jesus is asked all those questions, you know, when he goes into Jerusalem and they're firing questions at him, at the end he says, I've got a question for you. David. When he says, my Lord said to my Lord, what's up with that? How can God, how can David call the Messiah his God as well as God his God? And so, uh, the, the, what he calls the Messiah is Adonai, which they understood meant God too. So they thought if we don't say Jehovah, if we keep people from saying Jehovah, then we'll keep them from sinning. That maybe for that long sounds smart. But if you stop to think about it, it really doesn't. A, God gave it, you know. In fact, in Exodus 3 and Exodus 6, when he really comes down on the I am thing and Jehovah being a form of a I am as a noun, he says, this is the name I want you to remember me by. This is my covenant name right here, Moses. And I want you to use it before the fathers used El Shaddai as my covenant name. But I'm telling you right now, I want you to use Jehovah with the covenant he gave with Moses. And then they come along and they've come up with this squirrely thing to where you're not even going to say Jehovah. So that's, that's what's part of all this. And, and that's one reason why they got such a harsh reception from Jesus and from John the baptizer when people came to be baptized of him because of that. And so when they ask this question of Jesus, he really doesn't have any time for them because they're playing games and they make up rules and they make up regulations and all kinds of things that have taken the people away from what God really said. The example he gives in Matthew 15 and he gives in, in uh, Mark 7 has to do with honor your father and mother. That's a, is that a Bible thing? 
It's a Ten Commandment thing. It's a big deal, right? Guess what? They found a way around it. But you can't really find a way around something God says, can you? What was their way of getting around honor your father and mother? What did they do? They said that that, that I say money that, that would have been used would be called Corbin. Yeah, you remember Achan, uh, who got the stuff from Jericho? It was under the ban, Corbin. It's for God. Leave it alone. And so they would take the money that would have been used to help their mamas and their daddies, and they said, this is Corbin, which meant we don't have to use it for them anymore. And Jesus said, you've, you've taken the word of God, and you have subverted it with your own traditions of men. And he says, you're good at doing that. You do it all the time. So we've got to be careful we don't get into that game. And that's why John had no time for them. That's why Jesus is constantly getting in, in a, an argument with them. And, and all this kind of stuff is going on. And so um, when he cleanses the temple the first time, uh, yeah, they're a little shocked when he does it. So, what authority do you have? And they, they really don't want to answer that question because they're game players. They're not real. All right, John 3, 5. Okay, water there, right? Nicodemus. Got to be born again, born from above. The Greek phrase actually can be translated either way. In fact, I think probably both of them are meant as the exchange goes back and forth. Now, Nicodemus, Nicodemus is one of those guys. He's a Pharisee. Like he's a big old Pharisee. He's probably a member of the Sanhedrin. He's, he's a mover and shaker. And he comes to Jesus when? What time of the day? At night. The other two times he's mentioned in the King James Version and the New King James Version, it's also noted that he came by night. So I, I don't think it was just letting us know it was night. I think he, he's not sure. Now, what, what has Jesus disturbed when he cleanses the temple? Who's in control of the temple? It's not the Pharisees. Who is? What's that other big group? Starts with an S. Sadducees. And did the Sadducees and Pharisees normally get along? No. Now, they got together for Jesus because he had a common enemy, but no. So uh, you've got a Pharisee visiting because he's messed with the temple and he's cleansed it. And that's the Sadducees' playground, you see. So maybe, maybe this new rabbi will be of use to us. So he comes in and he says, we know you must be sent from God because he's been working other signs besides it. Does he mean that? No. Because if he meant that, that would be all we needed, right? We're not going to have to talk about anything. You're from God. You tell me whatever you want me to know, and I'll go tell everybody. If you're really from God, I'm here to find out what you say. But he's not. And does Jesus return the compliment? You know how we're supposed to return a compliment when we get complimented? Does he return the compliment? No. (laughs) Far from. What does he do? You must be born again. You can't see, can't, you can't see, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. And then he, he, he comes back and he says, except you're born of water and the spirit. Because what crazy thing does Nicodemus come up with? Do you mean that I'm supposed to go inside my mother's womb and be born again? Well, of course, that's what he meant. No, we get goofy when we don't want to see what's there, don't we? 
Water and the Spirit. Now, okay, stay with me for a while on this. Later on in that conversation, Jesus says to Nicodemus regarding his, what are you talking about? He says to him, how is it that you, being the teacher of Israel, don't understand these things? Right? In other words, you should be able to understand this. Did he know anything about Christian baptism to understand it? But that's okay. Don't panic. What baptism did he know something about? It was a baptism of repentance for remission of sins. John's. And what had he done with that? He'd rejected it. So he has rejected something that he should have accepted in repentance for remission of sins. And so Jesus is telling him, I'm sorry, but, but, but you've got to be born again. Your, your Pharisee ways have gotten a hold of you. They've corrupted you. And you've rejected something that you needed to embrace like everybody else was to prepare you for the Messiah. But you didn't do it. And he said, you ought to have understood this. And you should have. Questions? Comments? We can still use it as an illustration for baptism, by the way. But. John 3, first of all, 23 to 30. What's he doing there? John 3, 23 to 30. Got more water here. Who all is baptizing now? He's, where is he baptizing, by the way? Near where? Ain't none? Why is he baptizing at that particular place in the Jordan River? There's a bunch of water there. Who's been to over yonder? Dars? You've been over there. Did y'all go to the Jordan? Were you impressed? No? <laughs> there are places where it's got little deep spots. And, and he's at a deep spot. Because it's, it's kind of like a glorified creek. And so he's found him a place where he can dunk people. You know, if it, if it wasn't an immersion, he wouldn't have to worry about that, would he? And in fact, the fact that the text says, because there was much water there, if that's all he's doing, you don't have to have a lot of water. If you're immersing, you do. So, uh, now who else is baptizing besides him? At first we think Jesus might be doing it. But what do we find out later? Not really Jesus, it's his what? Disciples. Okay? And what, why is he doing that? Well, let's fast forward over to 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, where Paul says, you're divided. And he says, let me tell you what I mean about why you are divided. Some of you are claiming, as the one who baptized you, Cephas. Some of you are claiming who? Paulus. Some claiming Paul. Some of them are even claiming they were baptized in the name of Jesus. I mean, Christ. At least there were a few of them. And he says, I thank God. And here's the verse that's misused. And sometimes we're afraid of it. We shouldn't be afraid of it in contact. I'm thankful I didn't baptize very many of you. Does that mean he thinks baptism isn't important? Did Jesus think baptism was important? But he's not baptizing, is he? Maybe he's not baptizing for the same reason Paul is glad he didn't baptize. Because guess what people would say? Man, I was baptized by Jesus. Yeah, yeah, me. When I, uh, yes. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, if it's dedicated to personalities, they're gone. Um, I started out mentioning this to you, and uh, Sarah will verify it. I think she's packed it up because we packed up most everything. Uh, there, there was in a, in a frame a little sweet dress. Guess whose dress it was? Guess what I did in it? I got christened. Well, although we switched denominations, the, 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 the basic way they looked at life and baptism was exactly the same. And, and that was that when you got old enough, you know, your mom and dad said, we're dedicating him and all that. That when you get old enough, you're supposed to say, yeah, and I affirm that for myself. I'm taking it. So uh, when we'd gone to the other denomination, I had to take confirmation classes to confirm that I was okay with that decision. And, and so when, when that happened, after you went through confirmation class, the bishop of the diocese would come. And see, I got sprinkled in, and, and he would pour you. So I've been sprinkled, poured, and immersed. How many of you can say that? Uh, and I remember my cousin Ann was talking about this, uh, the bishop of the diocese, who was, he was making a special trip for all the people who got confirmed in, the la- in that, that bunch that I was in. And, and he was going to pour you. And, and she said, uh, with passion, he looks just like Jesus. I don't know how she knew that, but uh, he was a stately, striking man. Uh, uh, but uh, nevertheless, so... But that, that was a big, you got poured by, you got brought in by that guy. Not just the regular parish guy. You've got the biggie there with you. And so we can kind of see how that works. We can kind of see. I have, I have, as much as I have been able to when I baptize, I don't baptize. <laughs> I get, I get daddies if, if possible to baptize. Uh, because, uh, well, I don't think anybody's going to go crazy about, well, Edwin baptized me. But nevertheless, I just think it's a better deal. So uh, when, when, why didn't Jesus baptize? I think that's the very reason he didn't baptize. Because he, can you imagine what would have happened in the early church? Well, guess what? He may have had John baptize you, but Jesus baptized me. So anyway, but, but he's, he's, now, how does John, in this water moment of Jesus' life, of he baptized his disciples are, and, and John's baptizing, uh, people, they're coming to John, his disciples say, you know that one there, he's baptizing, and there are more people going out to be baptized by him than are being baptized by you. And he says, well, yeah, of course they are. This John, he's got so much to admire about him. He doesn't have an ounce of pride in his body. He's all about Jesus and none about himself. And that's, I mean, it's hard to do that when you've got everybody in the whole country coming out to be baptized with you and talking about what a wonderful person you are. And yet he does it. He says, he's the bridegroom. i got to give him the honor. And he says, I must what? Decrease. And he must increase. Man, John. I mean, you think of John being a fiery guy, and he was, a courageous guy, and he was, but man, he was a humble guy. That wasn't easy. But he did it. 
Okay? So going, going along, continuing into the water world of uh, Jesus, uh, John 6, 15 through 21. I have, uh, what's going on there? In Matthew 14, 22, what's going on there? After the feeding of the 5,000, what happens? Uh, they're going to the other side. Jesus doesn't go with them in the boats. This is different from the time when he was in the boat. Uh, so, where is he? Because they're looking. They're, looking, they're trying to make him a king, right? Because he fed them. And he has to get away from them. So, they go to the other side and they've counted the boats and they counted the people. and they realize, He's not with your boats. Where is he? But there he is. How'd he get over here? And Jesus immediately, when they come up to him, he says, you're not following me because of the signs. You're, you're following me because I fed you. Uh, which is not very complimentary, but Jesus can be that way sometimes. So, what, who do they see walking along? Jesus. Jesus. And uh, they're, they're, they're a little unnerved by this. Uh, maybe it's a ghost. It's not. And, and he says, he tells, is this me? It's me? Now, Simon Peter. If we put all the accounts together, you know how he is. If it's you, tell me to come on out. And so Jesus said, come on out. How long does that last? Not not very long, apparently. What causes Simon to go into the water? He starts, yeah, he loses, he starts looking at the water. (laughs) Because... People can't walk on water, right? Especially in a storm. I mean, come on. What if he kept his focus on Jesus? That's what I mean. That's that's basically the principle there. That uh, regard. I like that song that builds to the crescendo, whether those are you know, and, and all that. Uh, he and he's able to say, "Peace be still." The other part of his water adventures there on, on the sea. Um, have you seen that picture? There's a there's a piece of art that's fairly uh, out there. Where it's got how it would look, Simon Peter looking up through the water and seeing Jesus. Anybody seen that one? That's a cool picture. It's like, whoa. <laughs> Help me. And he does. So there's another. Uh, now, let, let's, let's, the storm being stilled and his having power over it. We put those two things together with, with the two instances that we have about that. Let's go back to Genesis, the first chapter. The creation week. What covers the earth first? Water. So one of the things that God does is he brings the land out of it. The whole thing of Genesis is moving toward humanity, the crown of God's creation. And the first thing you want to do, the earth was with what? Out form and void. So he hasn't formed it for anything yet. It's just there. He's going to start forming it in the six creation days for Adam and Eve, for human beings, to draw attention. This is what this is about. It's about these people here in my image. Uh, Andy Wright and I were eating together tonight. You know how that Andy is. He's always looking into stuff and studying. So we, we banter things back and forth. And we were talking about evolution and how... Where, you know, people say, well, y'all are close to chimpanzees. Anybody got a chimp with them tonight? We'll just have to imagine it. Um, a chimpanzee is about seven times stronger than you or me. 
That's pretty strong. That can rip us apart. He, he told me about a time that they had this orangutan, a female 170-pound orangutan, and this 350-pound sumo wrestler that were doing the rope thing. The orangutan just goes, poop. <laughs> what happened? Where's all our strength? Where's all our hair? Where is all this? Where's the monkey that's close to us to be able to make things and build houses and, you know, maybe crude automobiles? Um, back, I don't know how this got by. Y'all, any of y'all have, take Smithsonian Magazine by chance? It's out there. Do you know it's out there? It's out there. Okay, I should take Smithsonian. So they have an article in Smithsonian. This guy, it wasn't Jane Goodall, but it was somebody else who was living with, with uh, with uh, chimpanzees. She's kind of following up on Jane's studies. And, and she made a statement, which um, they actually let it in the magazine, which I was amazed. And it's true. She said, the distance between us and a chimpanzee is like the distance between a chimpanzee and an amoeba. Whoa. But that's the truth. They can't touch us. They can't touch us. They, you, you know, sometimes here, they have the intelligence of a six-year-old child. Really? No, they don't. That's foolishness. So um, God has been able to do some, some, some really amazing things. But when human beings try to justify it, they want to go in and, and, and debunk it. And, and so that the, the creation thing that we have in Genesis 1 is one of those areas that they like to go into and talk about how silly it is and whatnot, which it really isn't. But uh, one of the words that is used for the deep, water that was everywhere, is the same root as a Babylonian creation myth god, Timat. And one of the things the Old Testament does is it likes to take things from pagan foolishness and show what the real deal is and how it makes pagan stuff look silly. And so one of the things that God demonstrates to those around about with their various creation myths, like Gilgamesh and the Enuma Elish and such things as that, God was in charge of the waters. He created them. And he did with them what he would. And they could not resist him. So if you were a pagan back then, you're saying, oh, uh, it kind of gets your attention. A, a water thing. So w- when Jesus is able to show his ability to still the waters, to walk on the waters, it's, he's, it's a carryover in some respect to all the way back in Genesis. God's in control of this thing. Totally, completely, every way you can look at it. He's just totally in control of it. So uh, he does that. Um, Questions? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I'm supposed to be done by quarter after, I think. Am I right? Is that correct? Is that what's been going on? Because Neil promised he wouldn't go longer than that, so I have to keep his promise for him. Great commission. We know it. Here's the routine. The command is make disciples. But there are three participle things that explain the basis of what that is. And the first one is as you are going. Going. The second is baptizing. There's baptizing. And the third is teaching. 
All things whatsoever I've commanded you. So the commission has water in it. Water stands between a person and their sins and a person who can be a disciple because to have uh, your sins removed, you've got to get on the other side of the water. There's some interesting Old Testament things that, that provide imagery for that. Egypt, the Red Sea, Canaan, uh, there, there, was a, there was a Red Sea between them and their deliverance, and God took care of it. And there is water between us and our deliverance. It's not the basis for our salvation, but it is there nonetheless. Mark 16, 15 and 16, again, the Great Commission. So we, we come to Acts 2, 36 to 41. Jesus had said that the Holy Spirit would come and he will teach you all things and will guide you into all truth. So he comes right here, Acts 2, right? In fact, if you look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, and you start in verse 8, it says he gave gifts to men. Uh, well, he, he sent the Holy Spirit. He gave some as apostles and so forth and so forth. So all of that's taking place here on uh, Pentecost, the sermon that starts with the word Jesus, when Peter says, listen to me, Jesus, and then he starts preaching a sermon. Um, what does he do? He, he spells it out with their scripture, does it not? He also tells them, and by the way, guess whose tomb is empty? And you know it because you're right here and you know it is. And you got a quote from David here about somebody wanting to be corrupted in the tomb. And is it David? Well, no, because you people know where David's tomb is. They did back then. And you know that his bones are in it, don't you? But you also know that Jesus' tomb doesn't have bones in it. Guess what? That prophecy's talking about him. He puts the picture together, lets them do the math. And so when he says... This same Jesus who you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. They get it. Yeah, it adds up. That's right. We can't deny it. 3,000 of them said, you know, we're going to receive that because it makes sense and it's biblical and we're going to accept it. And the 3,000 who received it, what happened to the 3,000 that received his word? They were baptized. And they were added that day. 3,000 souls. So, um, water is continuing to be part of the story, this time with, with the baptism that is authorized by Jesus, because we get into Acts 18 and 19. We've got Apollos who's preaching up to John's baptism. We've got some people in 19 that he's probably baptized who know John's baptism. They don't know Jesus' baptism. Paul says, you know anything about the Holy Spirit? We don't even know anything about the Holy Spirit. Okay, you must not have been baptized with Jesus' baptism. You must have been baptized by uh, John's baptism, I'm filling in the blanks here. And so you need to be baptized with Jesus' baptism. We've got another water situation now that has Jesus' authority on it uh, and not John's with, with God's previous authority. So that happens. Now, Acts 10 and 11. What's going on here in Acts 10 and 11? Who's getting baptized? Who's getting converted? Okay, we're going to put the two accounts together. i got the pertinent verses there for you. And we may not get finished this, but the ones that follow, you pretty much come acquainted with anyway. Simon Peter's minding his own business. What happens? Has a vision, right? Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Unclean animals. I don't think so. How many times? Three times. Next thing you know, what happens? Folks come from Cornelius. Say, we've been sent by God to get you to come to Cornelius 
to speak to him. Off he goes. He gets there, and he, 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 he gets it. I now understand that everybody's open to the gospel. That's what the three thing, the sheet coming down with the unclean animals was all about. And so the uh, Holy Spirit falls on them uh, there in chapter 10. Uh, and uh, what, what does he do? He, he says something there. Who can forbid the what? Water? That these be baptized. Okay, now some people say, you know, the Holy Spirit fell on them, they must have been saved. No, they weren't. That doesn't make any sense. Consider this. The thing that he's concerned about that the Jews might have had a problem with was baptizing an, an uncircumcised person. I mean, the Holy Spirit's already fallen on them. If that saved them, well, you know, what's baptism? It's just a testimony of what had already happened. But he is concerned, and God took it out of the way, that somebody would say, wait a minute. In fact, chapter 11, he goes down. And they, we hear that you baptized an uncircumcised person. You even ate with them. What's going on with that? He says, let me rehearse it to you in order. He says, I was, I was told, they were told, that I would come and I would preach words to them whereby they must be saved. Words, and he says, when I started speaking, he hadn't spoken them to him. And preach the gospel to him. When I started speaking, Holy Spirit comes down. And, and that was, okay, he did that on Jews, on Pentecost. He's doing it on Gentiles now. So we must can do what we did after the Holy Spirit fell on Pentecost with these Gentiles. We can baptize them. And who was I to forbid the water? And when they heard that, they rejoiced, seeing that God had granted repentance to the Gentiles for remission of sins. And we got water. He's concerned what happens when we get to the crescendo of the sermon and we're going to need to baptize people and these people are uncircumcised and we've got Jews around and what are we going to God took care of it. Had the Holy Spirit fall on It didn't save them. It didn't save the people on Pentecost. So water remains there. One other thing, kind of, I think. Well, that's two. If I keep you two minutes late, you'll not hurt me, will you? Galatians 3, 26 and 27. For you are all sons of God through what? Faith in Christ Jesus. Let's stop it there because a lot of people stop it there. Let's stop it there. No, no, no. Wait. It doesn't stop there. It's a verse 27. What is that? For. What does for mean? Talking about something. That's just, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ did clothe yourself with Christ. How are you sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus? As many as you as were baptized into Christ, close yourself with Christ. You, put, you, you wind up in Christ. In Christ is where it is. Last thing, 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21. Which is, a, you get all kind of crazy stuff coming out of this. That Well, there was, a, there was a plan of salvation for the Jews and there was a plan of salvation for the Gentiles and they weren't the same and all that. They were the same because it was one gospel. But, you know, if it doesn't fit your scheme, sometimes you come up with crazy arguments. 3.20. Who are we talking about? Who was disobedient? People in the days of whom? Noah. So what did God do? Few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the what? we got water there, don't we? A lot of it. Corresponding to that, my Nasby says. 
baptism. Baptism must have something to do with water, must it not? If he's saying that, isn't he? I mean, doesn't that make perfect sense? Now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, not a Jewish ceremonial washing. So let's, let's, let's go back to uh, the wedding feast. Why did he change the water to wine? Because water was for earth, was for fleshly purification. He's changing it to wine because wine was a symbol in the prophets of the coming of the Messiah who would bring forgiveness of sins. And he's basically saying, I'm here and I've got something better than the water you're washing yourselves with right now. Anyway, back to our story. Uh, But the appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where's the power? What if Jesus hadn't been resurrected? 1 Corinthians 15, we among all men are to be most what? Pitied. But he did rise from the dead. And baptism has his authority. And the risen Christ at the right hand of the Father had commissioned people to go and baptize into his name and the Father's and the Holy Spirit's. And when that is done, our search to have a good conscience is fulfilled, not because we put our trust in water, but because we exercised our faith in what God told us to do, and we were baptized, coming in contact with the blood of Christ in his death, Romans 6, 3, and 4, to be raised to walk in newness of life. The very picture that baptism is shows us visibly what is happening that we can't see. It is an outward sign of an inward grace, but they are inseparable. They happen at exactly the same time. Farewell. If you are going to be in the huddle, you're going to be with the teachers or on the team, I have... Uh, Thanks to help you out with your questions down here if you'd like to get them.